Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now, if we look at the big questions, such as what is the world made out of? Does life have a purpose? Is there life after God? What is consciousness? Does God exist? And all those sorts of really big questions. I would say we have three schools of thought. We have religion, which has its own view of a lot of these questions, and are they're multifaceted. When you look at certain religions, they tend to follow um, scientific materialism, which is the second um, school of thought. Now, in scientific materialism, many folks hear this term. They don't know what it means. It sounds like some kind of esoteric um term, but what it really means is that the world's a giant complex machine built for no purpose and devoid of meaning. Everything we see and experience, according to the materialists, from consciousness to love to the starry heavens can be reduced to particles. And most people may not realize, but materialism dominates um, our current worldview. One other school of thought uh, is a consciousness-based or mind-first worldview. And in this worldview, consciousness is primary and matter secondary. Materialism, matter is primary. Consciousness either doesn't exist or is secondary, which means, according to the materialist, consciousness arises from the gray matter of the brain. Uh, consciousness uh, school of thought turns the the page pivots the telescope and views the world as arising from consciousness. This viewpoint, many may not realize, has a long history, a history older than materialism. But despite the efforts of many authors and speakers, the citadel of materialism still stands. On, to, on, on today's show, we're going to try to uh, explore why this is the case with one of the leaders and pioneers of this opposition movement, the consciousness first school of thought, and that's Amit Goswami. Now, Amit is really, uh, as I said, a pioneer. He's written uh, virtually 20 books, and his 1993 book, The Self-Aware Universe, How Consciousness Creates the World, is essentially a classic in this genre. Now, Amit also uh, was formerly a, pro a professor of physics at the Institute of Theoretical Sciences at the University of Oregon. He's won many awards. He's uh, he's probably been on a thousand podcasts. I'm happy to have him on the show once again. Amit, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Always good to see you and talk to you. Yeah, well, we you know we we always have a lot in common, and it's it's uh, I reread your book. Well, I read your book, God is Not Dead, as I mentioned before the show. Uh, and, you know, I really think that you you break ground and you've been breaking ground since the early 1990s. And, and to start things off here, what what was your inspiration to go down this path? What what uh, led you to to transition from being a a, a university professor in quantum mechanics theoretical physics to taking this route that you've taken with your publishing? Well, you know, my life was not working. That's the thing. But of course, I didn't know what to do about it. My marriage was failing. The physics I was doing was succeeding in the academic sense. I was getting promotions, but the problem was that I was not liking it. It did not bring me any satisfaction. It's too boring. So what does one do in these circumstances? I didn't know. So at a conference, after suffering through the whole day from the enormous amount of dissatisfaction and jealousy, 
I had an intuition. The intuition was, why do I live this way? A question first. And then came the um, answer. The answer was that I don't need to. I can integrate. I can really integrate my how I think, how I live, and how I make my living. Namely, I can integrate physics with how I live. That part was the interesting part to me. And eventually, I uh, began the search for happy physics, physics that will make me satisfied. Yeah, uh, I remember, you know, this uh, incident happened in 1973, but I did not discover uh, quantum measurement theory or did not dare to discover. I already know the theory, everybody knows, but they did not dare to look into it because everybody, all physicists discouraged every other physicist that don't go that route, nobody can solve this problem. But fortunately, I was desperate. So, uh, and, you know, I was also challenged uh, spiritually, uh, challenged also romantically. My wife said, I don't know how to love from the heart. Uh, spiritually, I was doing meditation and um, why that was making me happy. There was no explanation. Being a scientist, uh, doing something which has no explanation is kind yeah. of peculiar, did not like that. So all this brought me to quantum physics. And once that happened, everything sort of gelled together in a while. Although that was also a struggle. I got into quantum physics about 1979 and did not get any substantial result until 1985. So uh, it, it took time. Yeah, so so there was there was an inspiration you had. Um, it seems like it was a broad inspiration, and usually people, you know, we all go through this, and and it's and they could be trying experiences because they tend to be not only you know they're deep, emotional, and 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 broad, but you 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 came across something with regard to uh, quantum physics, and you know. Every time I talk to folks about quantum physics, a lot of people want to know about it, but A, most people don't have the time, and and B, there's a category of issues, I think, that people put out there. It's like, that's someone else's problem. Uh, and, and so I think that's the way still most people think about quantum physics. We are going to further discuss the social impact of quantum physics, but... First of all, what was it about quantum physics and your studies that led to your inspiration and and your and your famous book, The Self-Aware Universe? Um, this is a very good question. The, the thing is that you know when I studied quantum physics in college, um, that was when I was sixteen. Um, uh, uh, the uh, idea was to learn how to use quantum physics. That's what the teachers are telling, and that's where physicists do. They use quantum physics to calculate, um, uh, not what quantum physics means. But uh, in 1979, when, we, uh, when I looked at it again, then I found from the beginning that, oh, this is very interesting because the questions open up right away. It's just that physicists kind of um, uh, deal it in a very shoddy manner. Uh, shoddy manner because they don't want to get stuck there or maybe they want to sort of please uh, the people who are not interested in philosophy. There's a large number of physicists in the 20th century who were against philosophy. Very good physicists and indeed contributed actually to philosophy indirectly by their work because they are so brilliant, but their attitude towards philosophy was very negative. Right. And so nobody wanted to understand uh, quantum physics, that's the real truth. But actually, quantum objects are both waves and particles. That is the wisdom one gets. And this wisdom that is propagated in books like Tao of Physics, books like Dancing Woolly Masters, they are famous books. Right. But they all, they all harp on the idea that quantum physics is both. And, and the wisdom was at that time, okay, so you have to go from 
either or logic, Aristotelian logic to a both and logic. And how to do this was big discussion in the 1970s right. and 80s, which I was reading when I got into it in the late 70s. So, but you know, this is not at all the debate. The debate is not at all because quantum mathematics says very clearly, quantum objects are waves, period. No, no equivocation. Mathematics in physics is very important because mathematics is absolutely irrefutable logic provided the basic assumptions are correct. You have to catch mathematics wrongness in the basic assumptions. Once mathematics is there, mathematics will give you the right outcome. You cannot challenge that. Mathematics is this. This is why we like in right. physics mathematics. But in this case, the mathematics was clear. Message was very clear. It's there are waves, but they are not waves like in ordinary space and time. They are waves of a peculiar kind because whenever we try to see these waves, when we have tried to measure these waves, they become particles. This was the mystery. They are not both waves and particles at the same time. They are waves first. When we try to measure, then they become particles. Right. So, right. Right. But, Right, right. And so just, just to put that um, and I'm into, um, into, into different words, um, mathematics and, and the theory says things do not exist on their own, that when you do the observations, when you do the testing and you do the mathematics, you wind up with a wave, a prob they're called probability waves, waves of possibility whatever but the great mystery as far as i can tell is that when we look at the world we don't see a wave we're not fish we're not looking at a bunch of you know otherwise life would not be possible right i mean we would not be the differentiated beings in a in a material yeah. world yeah and so, and so i just wanted to highlight that you know this is what when you have you know i when i try to give my elevator speech about quantum physics, and I'm nowhere uh, at your level of understanding it, um, even though I have been trying to figure out myself for most of my life, um, I always get to this wave particle thing. And at that point, people's eyes sort of glaze over. But I do think that this is such a fundamental question and a fundamental mystery that we haven't, I don't think that human society, and, and I'm saying the, the, the educated, the uneducated, the professionals, the, the, the white, white collar, blue collar, whatever collar you want to give them, that there hasn't been enough tension, attention given to this mystery. So anyway, yeah. I, I interrupted you a little bit. because No, 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 very, very, very good point you're making. This is, uh, this is what I was getting at, because yeah. if there are waves, not in space and time, however, when where are they do their why do they do their waving? Right. Now so we have to postulate that there is a domain of reality outside of space and time. And this is where it gets to people. Because many people believe only things they can see with their eyes. I mean, this is metaphor partially, because of course we use all five senses, but right. the point is that they believe only in things they can experience sensorily. They do not want to believe anything that anybody proposes comes from outside of our sensory domain of space and time. Right. So this is the first problem, and this problem pervades enormously among the scientists. Right. The deciders, the, the, the arbiters of knowledge today. And this is very sad because the uh, reason that people don't understand consciousness is the same reason. Look at what happened in psychology. In the same year that quantum physics was discovered, around 1900, Freud was proposing the idea of unconscious. He had the same reaction from the professionals, that what is unconscious, it cannot be in space and time, how can unconscious things that we cannot see in your behavior, how can that produce behavior that is not what you are saying. We are saying repressed emotions are producing this aberrant behavior. But that's what we see. We see the aberrant behavior. Where are these repressed emotions? We don't see that. 
right. and this they could not accept. Of course, some people did accept it, got uh, touched the popular vein because Freud had some success healing the suffering of people, and you cannot ignore success. So uh, Freud became quite acceptable and famous to at least part of the profession of psychologists. In physics, I had no such luck uh, because initially there was no application. And uh, that was unfortunate. When I came to do the applications, like in 1993, I wrote uh, published Self-Aware Universe. 10 years later, 11 years later, 2004, I published my book on application, Quantum Doctor. But unfortunately, materialism has become already very, very established. So although I certainly substantial number of people started looking at quantum science because it had, it had medical health implications. So I gained some more um, exposure, but uh, I could not follow that up, that success very much because after all, I'm not a healer. I myself don't heal, it's just theory. Right. So, um, and quantum physics is kind of difficult for health professionals to get into. So although people like the idea, especially the alternative medicine physicians who I supported because I showed that their work is fine, they all postulate this domain outside of space and time. And that is correct. I show how I explain feelings, I explain chakras. So it was popular, but the people for which, for whom it was popular, it was acceptable, they unfortunately are not quantum physicists. And they were scared of quantum physics getting into quantum physics. They could not switch to quantum thinking. Right. So this has been the case for quite a while. Right. Only recently, about six years ago, five years ago, I realized that we have to train our own people. Right. We have to train people with quantum science so that they learn how to do quantum science appropriately, how to bring this knowledge into the profession. So now we have a PhD master's program where we are training people. Well, and... so, so let me let me just try to um, sort of simplify and generalize something here. And this is the way I look at it, that. You have a school of thought. That's why I started off the show with the school of thought concept, which is that you have a school of thought that believes either the mind or consciousness is primary and therefore believes the mind has a certain influence upon the physical world, upon your life, and upon your body, or, or on the opposite ends of the spectrum, we're robots and all your hopes, dreams, prayers, intentions mean nothing. You are, you are, pro we're programmed by our genes as, as Richard Dawkins might say. And there's no, there's no other, there's no other force in the world operating other than the random mechanical processes of nature. On the, on the other, on this consciousness first side, on the medical um, angle, we have a we have as you know and and your book say this you know there's a number of sort of phenomena such as the placebo effect is a good one and then there is you know then there's faith healing there's spontaneous remission there's prayer i know um all sorts of people have written books about the power of prayer and <clears throat> quantum physics it seems to me provides a sort of a scientific basis for those alternate forms of healing, a scientific Absolutely. basis. Now, and that's sort of what people forget about. Now, I don't think we have unlocked the mystery of quantum physics if it's, if it, yet, in terms of how to sell it to the public. <laughs> but, but to me, that's really the, the, um, one of the benefits because like the placebo effect is just to me that's probably the most studied i've written on the on the placebo effect you know the effect that why do placebos have the same curing power 
in many instances as pharmacological drugs do. You know, why is that? And no one's really, you know, they talk about, well, they thought it was going to work and there was an intention and they prayed and they believed the doctor and they had faith in the medical system, but still they weren't taking any drugs and any real drugs, quote unquote. And in many instances, as you know, sometimes surgery is alleviated because of the, of, of the placebo effect, which I think is an amazing thing. Cause now it is. it's, it's, it's an amazing thing because we, you know, we're, we're taught to think that only, only medical instruments can mm-hmm. cure a tumor. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. You have to cut the thing out. You have to radiate it. You have to blow it up, whatever. Or you uh, have to do chemotherapy. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And so, and so, so I want to un- just underscore this. And I think this is the way, this is, I think the power of, of what, of what you do um, in, in, in saying, you know, in, in having this discussion, I think back, you know, I have a philosophy degree for better or worse. I, I'm glad I did it. Um, you know, Hume, David Hume, one of the probably top five, definitely one of the top five philosophers of all time. He's quoted on both sides of the aisle, by the way, for various principles. Right. But but one of his principles was, you know, he reached he reaches the same conclusion the two of us reach and you reach, which is which is that there is essentially um, the 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 belief in an independent world is only a belief that all we ever have are perceptions. But then he says, but then he goes on to say, regardless of this intellectual conclusion, the mass of humanity takes the the crude route and just trusts their senses. That's sort of what he says, which I think is really, it's it's really insightful. I think he said that in the 1700s, by the way. Um, so that's sort of, I think, what we're dealing with a lot of times. Yeah dealing with people who just like, well, that's fine, but I'm going to give, you know, I'm going to go on and live my life. So what, what do you think needs to be done about that? I mean, I know you've confronted yeah. that problem. What, what do you very, think? Very, very good point. Very good point. Of course, you know, the, the, the fundamental problem is this. Look, we have ideas, archetypes, we call them love, beauty, justice, even truth is an idea. Everything that we think of uh, or feel are based on ideas. Even survival, which materialists indirectly accept uh, because it basis of Darwin's theory, is an idea. It's not really a material thing. I mean, molecules don't try to survive. People have tried to uh, build surviving molecules, no success. Molecules just are not built that way. You know, elementary particles, quarks, electrons, protons, neutrons, they don't survive. And according to the biggest wisdom that prevails today, elementary particles determine everything in the world. That cannot be refuted within the materialist paradigm. And elementary particles have no, nothing that talks about any of these mental ideas. So the materialists, when they say that, okay, so we are helpless, we can only study matter and how do these ideas enter in the material world? This is for the fundamental problem. Quantum physics solve a basic problem. Quantum physics solve, okay, how consciousness gets into the material world is now clear because we have waves of possibility. Consciousness has to choose among them. Right. So here is a question that I've been thinking about and also rereading some of your books. The waves, in my in my opinion, the waves themselves do not exist independent of consciousness. In other words, we right. I, I think that the the tendency is to think, I mean, this this I, I had written, I don't think I ever published this or even blog blogified it, but one of the mysteries of quantum theory, and if you read many of the <clears throat> orthodox uh, authors on this topic, they, they'll go and they'll talk about the waves of possibility, the waves of probability, and what you, and you know, the Schrodinger waves, and and the question is, I, I like to ask them, well, do the waves exist independently of consciousness? 
because all you've done as a materialist is to substitute a, a, a wave for a particle. Now you have waves independent of consciousness instead of particles independent of consciousness. And so the, in my opinion, and I'd like to have your view on this, you can't have consciousness influencing a wave unless they're on the same plane of existence or whatever term. Actually, actually, actually I'll put it even more squarely. The waves have to be within consciousness, otherwise you get dualism. Right. And du dualism is not permitted, that is obvious, because how does non-material interact with material? So right. only way that consciousness can influence waves, which it has to, because some agency got to choose. We cannot say the agency is random choice, so you cannot say cause causality goes away. You quoted David Hume. Ever since Hume, we have always accepted causality because otherwise science has no reason to exist. If we could say without cause, we can things can happen, then why do we need science? Science is about causal explanations. Right. So you cannot give up causality. You cannot make cause random because, you know, as Einstein used to say, God does not play dice. Right. Random cause just does not make sense. So cause means that you have to have a role for consciousness because conscious choice is the only cause. For Newman proved it mathematically. For Newman showed mathematically that if you, within quantum physics, Material interactions cannot be the cause of changing waves into particles. Right. So this this change that happens, which we call collapse, waves collapse to particles, we cannot explain with material interactions. And still people try and try and try to avoid this and all it's all sophistry. They try to fool themselves and try to fool a lot of audience. The ideas sound exciting. The audience get distracted. And this is how the history of quantum physics has been. Yeah. If, if people are honest, <laughs> then after von Neumann, they would automatically explain, okay, von Neumann still left room for some paradox. And those paradoxes is what I saw, basically. Right. And I, I, I saw them because of my personal uh, breakthrough with spirituality. I was looking at spirituality. I did some meditation. And I really verified uh, the spiritual claim myself that right. yes, there is oneness. I experienced the oneness of everything in consciousness by doing a meditation for seven days. After that, I didn't have any doubt that somehow the spiritual metaphysics is also correct. Right. What stopped me then was that I did not know how the brain can ever become conscious as you experience it. I mean, we experience consciousness with the brain. We can never experience consciousness without the brain. Right. So this was my problem. How does consciousness experience through the brain? And right. that problem took a long time to solve. But the basic idea came to me, uh, I intuited earlier. Right. So, Consciousness, if consciousness is the ground of being, then consciousness can accommodate not only material possibilities, but also vital, mental, even the supramental ideas. This is the crucial thing. And then your fundamental challenge is this. Your fundamental challenge is, okay, consciousness can enter physics because possibility wave and somebody has to choose, consciousness chooses. That's fine. That's more acceptable to many people than what I'm going to say now. This is also a challenge, but this is the biggest challenge. How does the conscious ideas get injected into matter? How are they embodied in matter? This is the problem. This really is second to the second most important problem. So, so how about- For example, how about you, want to, you want to love, but the point is you have to love with your body. That's right. the alternative. I mean, however you say it, ultimately, there are some bodily actions that has to take place in order for you to love. So how do I embody that in the body? How do I embody love? This is this is a huge problem, or even basic, Darwin. How do we embody the idea of survival in the body? Molecules don't try to survive. So how does it happen that our body has a survival instinct. How it does, indeed, we know that. 
If somebody threats you immediately, you will react to that. You want to save yourself. How do we get that instinct that we have to survive? Whereas molecules don't try that, right? Well, so this, this is the question, and this is what I solved actually in all my subsequent books after Self-Fire Universe. The, if you look at all the books, really this is the problem that is solved. How just conscious ideas get mapped, get embodied in the physical body. This is Philip Camella. Uh, this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm happy to be speaking with Amika Swami, one of the leaders in the Consciousness First movement. We're talking right now about uh, the intermixing between consciousness and matter. And, you know, Amit, you're, you, you were about to answer the question. So before I make my little observation, what, what was your solution? Okay, so the solution is this. This is where quantum comes in. So consciousness, on one hand, has organizing fields, and these organizing fields we call mind, we call vital body, for which uh, Rupert Sheldrake has given another name, he calls it morphogenetic fields, which is fine. Uh, these organizing fields gives consciousness, archetypes, that's another organizing field. This is what gives consciousness the ideas of what we experience. We experience indeed, Archetypes like love is an experience, an intuition that if I care for another, that would give me special happiness. It's an intuition. I look at you and I think, oh, I want to love this person. Right. It's an intuition. And intu what we intuit is an archetype. We cannot quite explain what it is because we don't have direct explanatory power, but we research and we embodies some aspects of the archetype in our life, in our body, in our uh, repertoire. So this idea, how to, how to then prove how these organizing principles, because consciousness can certainly collapse them and we do the effect, we get the effect, we feel, we think, we intuit, so the experiences are there. What one has to solve is that how does the physical body embody all this? And this is where the, uh, the problem was, because the physical body, people generally say, macro bodies are Newtonian. They're mechanical, they're not quantum mechanical. They don't, they don't have possibility waves. And so this prejudice had to be overcome. We had to postulate that somehow there is quantum in the macro physical body, both in the physical organs, and in the brain, especially, of course, we began with the brain, so especially in the brain. And this, again, became a huge subject of debate. So what I did initially, because I could not immediately prove this, the quantum nature of the body or the brain, so what I did was depend on experiments. Experimental data is better. They indeed have been telling us about coherence in the brain, brain waves, they become coherent in some experiences. They take quantum leap in some experiences, experiment. Um, fMRI, the uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging is giving us a lot of data of coherence in the brain. This cannot be refuted. So now we have direct evidence that yes, there is indeed coherence in the brain. Brain also has non-locality. I participated in an experiment myself done by uh, Hakubo Greenberg, uh, transfer potential, brain potential is transferred from one person to another. That was another kind of proof. But the actual proving is, um, uh, took me many years to only recently did I get, get to solve this problem. Actually, the problem is not that hard. The hints were there all along. Biology, was always prejudiced in terms of genes do everything. For a while, for a long while, actually, ever since Rupert Sheldrake wrote his book, he has been proposing the idea that there is the developmental problem of how organs develop, and that they are not genetic, they are epigenetic. The prerogative comes from outside of the genes. And indeed, even materialists now accept because 
it seems that way. It's, it's, it's experimental. It indeed the the uh, instructions for making proteins, which genes are going to be activated in which organ, that instruction does not come from the nuclear genes. It comes yep. from outside of it. So cell has another mechanism. And this mechanism, of course, materialists point out only material mechanisms. But what we now postulate, that this mechanism got to be quantum. The mechanism got to be quantum because consciousness can then choose simultaneously this mechanism that triggers what, uh, which protein, which genes have to be activated to make which proteins to function to get to the organ function of uh, the, that particular organ. And at the same time, consciousness also can collapse the, the morphogenetic field, which is the organizing principle. Look at the beauty of this idea. Morphogenetic field, which is the organizing principle, has ideas, consciousness ideas, like reproduction, like survival. All these are consciousness's ideas. And they are now mapped how? Because consciousness is collapsing this and parallelly collapsing also the physical organ to make proteins in such a way that they will reflect what I'm trying to map. So suppose I'm trying to map survival. How do I get into physical body to work towards survival? To develop an organ whose characteristic, primary characteristic is digestion of food which will enable the organism to survive. See how it works or when well, it comes to... Yeah, I, I mean, there, there, there's a lot there. I think that, um, you know, Rupert Sheldrake, who I did have on the show a number of years ago, um, his his morphic field uh, book and concept is is definitely groundbreaking and interesting. I mean, the way I and, I... and I do think, you know, one thing I really believe you know, in terms of unalterable principles, is that you have is that you have to have a unifying theory, and science calls it perhaps a theory of everything. But I always say their theory of everything is not a theory of everything because it leaves out everything they don't believe in. They don't have a theory of God, uh, reincarnation, life after death, afterlife experiences, the paranormal that 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 does, or even law. I mean, even emotions because or consciousness because that's outside of the theory but i don't think any scientist would argue with the principle that the ultimate goal is to have one theory that rules them all because right. and it, it's just like and now i'm getting a little off topic here but what the heck um it's just like the laws of nature okay so there's or the forces of nature is maybe easier. Okay, there's four forces of nature, gravity, electromagnetism, strong force, weak force. Okay, fine. Well, would why would four different forces just in that format arise all at once? And so that's that seems to be so improbable, so fine-tuned that that's really not acceptable. So scientists say, well, they must have arisen from one primordial force. Well, that's great. And I think that's true. There has to be a unifying theme. So I'm bringing up this unifying theme or unifying theory principle in the sense that the morphic field, which to me is I envision it like some grand organizing field, some grand organizing field where like if they like it's like an artist where you walk into this field as a blob and you go and it, it form and it, it, it's like imprinted in, in three-dimensional space and it, you, you, it forms or regularizes or gives order to things. In quantum, your, your, your approach to quantum theory, it seems like, okay, so consciousness, it's very similar because the consciousness is giving the order. Isn't that correct? Isn't that right? I mean, in terms of the order to the universe, ultimately, it's got to be consciousness because going the other direction, a topic we haven't talked about yet is fine tuning. Yeah. You know, how, how does science explain the harmony, synchronicity, order, regularity, con con constancy in the universe? They can't. 
right? Yeah, yes, but the, the problem with cell dex theory, of course, is that uh, how do non-material morphogenetic fields interact with matter? The same problem that we, that's dualism, and dualism is very hard to solve, just saying that there is a resonance, but where is the resonance? Resonance in physics is frequency matching, two objects vibrate in this but morphogenetic fields are non-material. We cannot attribute such things as frequency to uh, non-material things. Right. So, right. so it, it has problems, philosophical problems, right. which Rupert has not been able to solve. But I um, respected uh, Rupert's theory right away. And because of my respect, I intuited immediately that these morphogenetic fields, if there are possibilities of consciousness to choose from, then of course it's okay then right. there is no dualism because matter is possibility of consciousness. Morphogenetic fields are also possibility of consciousness. Consciousness work on them parallelly. It manifests or collapses possibility waves of morphogenetic fields. At the same time, it converts that agenda into matter by collapsing suitable material stuff there. Like I explained that here is survival, which is a morphogenetic field idea. And here is organ, stomach, gallbladder, liver, and pancreas. They are being made with the idea of digestion of food, right. which is the way to survive. Same thing for sexual organs, same thing for defensive organs in, in the heart chakra, the, heart, the immune system. Same thing for the brain, which is uh, again, uh, consciousness uh, needs mind to process meaning. Brain can only process information, cannot process meaning. So how do we map meaning into the brain? The same mechanism, parallelism. As we collapse the mind, we also collapse neurons in such a way that that mental meaning is mapped into the neuron. Now the neuron has information or neuron has become a symbol in the computing sense, and it can be used as a computer because neurons have mapped our mind, the meaning that originally existed in consciousness. So meaning mapped into brain, the ideas of, of, of living mapped into the physical organs, this is the key. Well, and, yeah, I, I think that um, that's, very close to where I'm at. I mean, my I have a little. I don't know if I published this yet, but I I think that both the physical world and the body are both ideas, and therefore, and that's why there's that's why they yeah, they're, they're embodied ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you know, that's why they could communicate. Now, I want to move. Okay, I before I move to the big question, I just want to. Uh, I thought I would ask you a question. I. You know, Quora is that online question and answer forum. I'm sure you've seen it. And um, for the heck of it, I asked a question to Quora a couple of weeks ago. It was, is consciousness ne necessary for a quantum field to exist? You know, it's really a pretty cool program or app because you could basically ask them anything. And, and so they do have, a you know, this metaphysical side of things. So I just asked this and it's, it was really amazing the answers I got, because that really is a big question. You know, is, is, is consciousness necessary for a quantum field? Because when I, you know, when I learned first was exposed to, is really a better way to put it, um, quantum physics in college, we read Heisenberg's paper on the uncertainty principle. And that was really mind opening because the uncertainty had to be a mental uncertainty. It had to be, had to be an internal uncertainty because the particles are not uncertain themselves. I mean, you have to add this uncertainty and, you know, quantum physics has evolved since then, but it come, but you know, then there was a two slit experiment where depending how you run the experiment, you're going to get a particle or a wave. Um, and then there's the collapse of the wave function, which is, they're all very similar. Consciousness has to do something. And so I thought, okay, well, this is a good question. And most people thought I was crazy. Um, although some folks like you said, that's true. You know, and really it was more of the Eastern mindset where 
the role of consciousness is not as odd as it is in the Western mentality. So I'm just wondering yeah. how you would answer that. Yeah. You put it down right there. The East-West dichotomy, this was perfect for Western physicists to ignore the idea of primacy of consciousness. Because they always say, okay, that's Eastern. But it's not really just Eastern. The Western civilization is based largely on Christianity. Nobody can deny that. And Christianity is the product of Jesus. Nobody can deny that either. Christ is Jesus. Although Christianity in actuality, popular Christianity does not follow much of New Testament. It is based more on the Old Testament. But still, Jesus is honored. And Jesus did discover the same one consciousness that Easterners talk about. So uh, this 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 is the kind of thing which I call red herring. You know, there are mirages that materials create, and they can they cannot then overcome their own mirage that they have created. In other words, they are like Donald Trump, believing your own misconceptions. And once you believe your misconceptions, very hard to remove them. Nobody can change these people. So what has happened? is that uh, they just ignore the fact that they're implicitly, they're dualistic. Nobody believes that their I or self do not have any role, because otherwise, why they're fighting with each other? Why they're so ambitious? Obviously, they believe that their I is important. Their I or me, whatever they call it, that's important. But that is a fundamentally different characteristic than the object, because this I can experience objects separately than itself. And right. this is ignored completely. And because it is ignored, it seems like the objects can be independent of experience or I. But of course, starting with Bishop Berkeley, uh, we always have known that, look, we get every information about the physical world from our experience only. Nobody can get anything out of the world without using the experience, which requires the side or self a representation of consciousness. So right. you cannot ignore consciousness, obviously, but yeah. uh, nothing is obvious when you have a prejudice, you know? So prejudice right. is very well, hard to overcome. Well, well that, that leads to my final question, um, which is really where I want to head to, <clears throat> is you've been doing this for 30 plus years, um, and I've been doing it not as publicly, but I do have a book and I've been doing the show and, and I have a lot of material ready to be published. But all this time, the challenge is how do you convince the masses? And how do you, I mean, to put it boldly, how do you really execute a scientific revolution? That's another way to put it. And I'm just going to say, and I'd like to have your thoughts. What I'm going to say is that I've come to the conclusion that Either Wigner was right that you have to wait for the um, older generation to die off, which is, you know, science progresses funeral by funeral, which is one of his favorite, his famous sayings. Another one is um, it's going to take a miracle, um, which is hard to wish for. But I really I'm coming to conclusion that it's going to be the people who follow this way of thinking and I'm calling it the consciousness first crowd, are just going to be healthier, live longer, be more youthful. And I think it's going to be, it's going to have to be proven, and maybe to put it really sort of crudely, by the Hollywood stars that all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're more vibrant when they get older as opposed to the plastic surgery. I mean, this is how, I told you I was going to be crude. But you're I'm, a little bit pessimist. But really, uh, Philip, there is more. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you what you think is going to turn the tide, right? Because yes, it, it, it is going to, the oh, tide, right. the tide turning is going to happen very slowly. Look, Copernicus discovered solar system being the right answer to astronomy 100 years before Galileo came about. Right. And even after Galileo came about, scientific materialism or, or Newtonian worldview was not the worldview that people accepted. Right. That had to wait until the 18th century. So it took roughly about two, three hundred years to get Copernicus's idea 
into actual worldview that today we call Newtonian or classical worldview, material worldview. It's almost synonymous. So quantum physics is, you know, we started quantum physics consciousness way of thinking only in the 1990s. It had only been 30 years. Today, the world moves so fast in technology, we believe that it can move that fast also in ideas. No, ideas cannot move that fast. Ideas take, take time. They take time and uh, that time has to be given because ideas change people's life. Whereas technology change people's life only superficially. Okay, so before I drank tea by making tea in a kettle in a, a very primitive stove, and now I make tea in much more sophisticated way of making tea. That's the change. Yeah, I, th I, think, I think that that is but, a, a very sort of, how can I put this? A very uh, mature and seasoned approach to it because, you know, we are a what have you done for me lately um, kind of society. We want things to happen overnight in a New York minute. I mean, the the fact that I, I refer to is it took the Catholic Church 359 years to admit that they were wrong about Galileo. Exactly. I mean, that, that is amazing. 359 years. I mean, talking about sort of being hard-headed. I mean, that is just amazing. So we, we hope, I guess, in, in, in closing here, because I know I have to let you go here. In closing, it's, you know, in truth, another a principle, another principle I think you cannot be refuted is that, I think it was Sherlock Holmes said, you know, when you eliminate all, all, the, all the impossibilities, whatever's left is the truth. Um, or uh, which it's nice yeah. detectives, you know, detectives. Yeah, yeah very good. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, you have, to, you have to have faith that the truth does remain standing after mm -hmm. all, because otherwise be, that applies to us, right? I mean... And, and, and the truth always is in the favor of that principle, which explains a lot more things than narrow truth. Like scientific materialism in, in, uh, indeed explains a lot of things, but cannot explain anything about human consciousness, nor those things that especially humans have, that right. are not mechanical, like feeling, intuition, etc. Right. So this is, this is our key, and we can go from there and develop all the sciences that we need as they become more and more useful, just like materialist science. As it became more and more useful with technology, so we have to develop technology of transformation. And this is where we are, we are developing. We have um, programs in quantum yoga and so forth, all kinds of things. We'll, we'll have to talk another time for discussing. Yeah, yeah we'll have to, I, you know, we have, we, have to, we have to talk further because I have all sorts of other ideas. But to me, the fun part of it is changing minds. That's the biggest challenge. And that is, yeah, it is. That is a gigantic challenge. So... Uh, Amit, thank you very much. Uh, it's it's always a pleasure talking to you. I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed this sort of unbridled uh, exchange here. the The moral of the story at the end is that the consciousness first uh, school of thought um, is slowly gaining strength. Uh, it's more more people are recognizing that matter first does not and cannot explain uh, the world we live in or our own lives. We'll have to see what the future may bring. My name is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.